it was one of these offhand comments that I would have not necessarily thought to really check on, but when we did, we couldn't find a single piece of evidence that this was true. We don't accuse people of being unethical. We just don't fund them. It's not like someone is born just a bad, evil human being, that they're going to start a company to do bad, evil things. And so, so the question of like, where does this start? How does it happen? Welcome to Entrepreneurship and Ethics, a special mini-series we're presenting on the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast. I'm Professor Tom Byers, and I teach entrepreneurship in Stanford School of Engineering. Today, on the final episode of this mini-series, we're looking at how venture capitalists can help founders and companies follow a principled path. I've invited two truly impressive venture capitalists to join me today. Anne Miraco is the co-founding partner at Floodgate, an influential seed-stage venture capital firm. Scott Sandell is the managing general partner at New Enterprise Associates, one of the largest and most respected venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. I hope you enjoy our conversation. To kick things off, I first asked them why, in their experience, startup founders sometimes go off the ethical rails. Silicon Valley has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. When I first got started with uh, Floodgate, it was one of these things where most people didn't do a startup. It wasn't a, a career path. Um, and today, you know, there's a career path in being a founder. And so as a result, whether it's the Shark Tank TV show, Silicon Valley, the TV show, uh, Social Network, the movie, there's a certain Hollywoodification of being a founder um, that lends it a superstar status. Uh, it also used to be that you would never talk about your valuation or how much you've raised. And suddenly that's, that's the thing that people want to talk to journalists about. And so I, I think that there's a certain element of why are founders uh, here that um, isn't as clear as it was maybe back in the day. There are reasons why founders uh, might sort of fall off the rails in, in ways that we, we haven't necessarily always seen. What I remember coming to Silicon Valley in the 80s is that people by and large came to Silicon Valley to change the world. They were most often engineers and technologists. They were hugely motivated by what their uh, technologies and products could do. Uh, and they tended to be a lot less focused on money. Uh, you know, certainly some of them thought about what might happen, but it wasn't their principal driver. And that, that changed sometime, I think, in the 90s, maybe the late 90s. Uh, but as Anne alluded to, you know, now there's this, this even additional um, motivation, which is to be famous. We think a lot about actually the, the founders and uh, their, their value system. And part of the way we try to get to this is through back channel referencing. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one, one story in particular. There was a, a founder that we met with and uh, another angel was sitting in the room with us meeting with, with this, this company. And the founder had in his profile, he had offhandedly mentioned that he was a Tetris world champion. And uh, the angel said, well, that's, that's really easy to back channel. Um, you should just try to figure out if that's true. And it was really interesting because it was one of these offhand comments that I would have 
not necessarily thought to really check on, but when we did, we couldn't find a single uh, piece of evidence that this was true. Everything was an article where the founder had said it himself. Uh, and so I went back to that founder and I said, you know, I know this might seem really strange. It has nothing to do with your business, but because it was in your pitch, I just need to get some evidence that this was true anywhere else. And the next thing I know, uh, even though we were, we were in pretty deep conversations to fund the business, the guy literally disappeared. And my partner to this day points to that and says, you know, how much did we, you know, save ourselves from something? I think what, what people really don't appreciate is that uh, some ethical lapse somewhere along the way can have very long-term consequences that are, generally speaking, not known to the person. Because nobody wants to say to a founder, you know, hey, that's a great pitch, but we, we've heard that you're a liar. Um, and so, uh, and, and therefore the conversation just stops. We don't accuse people of being unethical. We just don't fund them. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen countless examples of this uh, going all the way back to somebody that I went to business school with who, you know, was known to have lied, you know, by a number of classmates. And, you know, we didn't fund him later. And, but I think most people just don't have any appreciation for for how um, unethical behavior can close doors that you you never even see. You, you know, we've talked before, Tom, about this idea of ethical risk. You know, we fund lots of kinds of risk, and one of them is how much we trust the founder. Um, and if we, we can trust the founder completely, and maybe we give them complete control of their company as a result of, of that, that happens somewhat commonly in the modern world, didn't used to happen. Um, but we also, you know, recognize that in cases where we don't feel that we can trust somebody that much, we'll set things up in a way where, you know, we are not as exposed uh, if there's some kind of um, ethical risk or, or fraud. One of my favorite models, and it's been around for a long time, is this uh, risk reduction wheel, as some people call it, where people assign what a metric to the greatest risk at this moment. Is it market? Is it technology? Is it the team? So on. But, and what, do you have... Um, a view on this concept of an ethical risk being an additional uh, part of that wheel? I think all things considered equal, you wouldn't want to have that risk. But at the same time, you're, you're funding entrepreneurs that, that they, they usually have this rule-breaking mechanism inside of them. That's, that's partially what fuels an entrepreneur is that they don't live by today's rules. Uh, and then the additional question is, are the rules themselves, are there, are there a moral character to them? Or are they procedural rules? Uh, are the rules just wrong to begin with? And, and I, I think really having Founders who can discern those differences is, is really important. In funding a founder, 
we're actually funding someone who is designing a completely new future. And inherent in that is some, some element of breaking what happens today. And, uh, and I think that's where things become tricky. And for us, uh, making sure that our founders are not just taking on massive ethical risks, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. And it's something that as a partnership, we would really think through because that's a huge burden. You know, it, it's it's already a big burden to take on financial risk and technical risk and market risk. And then um, on top of that, like how much of that extra burden do you want to take on? Uh, the, the real question is how much are you looking over your shoulder? Um, and how much do you feel like you have to look over their shoulder? Uh, you don't want to be micromanaging founders. Scott, what's your view um, at NEA? Well, I mean, I think like Anne, we, we generally don't like to take ethical risk at all, but it's not that there are, there are cases, there aren't cases where we have, because we certainly have. Um, and one of the most interesting things I find in our partners meetings is that uh, oftentimes somebody who's less familiar with the domain and doesn't quite get into all the product stuff and excited about the market opportunity might be, say, a med team partner sitting in on a tech team presentation is more likely to just focus on the person and be able to notice their behavior and the things they say and, and come away with an impression of whether this is an honest person or not. And that's usually what comes up in the discussion to follow. Um, but if there are any serious doubts, you know, we just don't fund people who we can't trust because we're essentially committing uh, a pool of capital without the ability to take it back for very long period of time. And that pool of capital is entirely in the hands of the entrepreneur most of the time, unless they get fired. That's obviously not something you ever want to do. After deciding to back a given startup, venture capitalists continue to influence the companies they fund as board directors. I was curious to learn more about the ethical implications of those board roles. I asked Anne and Scott about their experiences on their governance boards. What levers do they have in those roles to encourage ethical decision-making? I spend, I would say, 90% of my time on seed stage boards. And they're the, the major questions that, that we think a lot about are the ethical frameworks of where is this product ultimately going to go? Where could it go wrong? And founders are actually talking about this a lot earlier than, um, than even five years ago, um, especially as, as they, they think about data. Um, but I think, you know, as it gets to a team of 10, even 25 people, then, then you're thinking about team hiring, diversity. Those are things that also come into, come into the mix. Um, pre, pre, pre IPO, fairly scaled businesses. I think then it becomes much more complex in terms of, um, you're, you're basically governing a mini society in some sense. Um, and, and there are a lot of additional questions to, to look at. Scott. Well, I think the thing that, that we, um, focus the most on is that the founder themselves, if they are the CEO of the company is in a very unique place, uh, which, which makes ethical behavior um, 
more important than for anyone else in the picture because they represent all constituents in negotiations on behalf of the company. And so uh, if they insert themselves and their own interests into those negotiations, you know, they can get into very dangerous uh, water very quickly. An example could be um, they're selling the company and the buyer says, you know, geez, um, what if we give you guys an extra incentive on the back end of this deal? We're going to give you another 5% of the company, but your shareholders can't participate in that. You know, I'm not saying that that's, that there aren't conditions under which that's a reasonable thing to think about. If that founder is in fact committing themselves to another term of service in the acquired company, they should be compensated for it. But if they don't recognize uh, that they are in pretty dangerous water in that negotiation and at a minimum uh, share exactly what's going on and what the trade-offs are with the board, um, you know, they can, they can very easily be uh, conflicted and, uh, and, and make, uh, you know, ethical lapses. What we try to emphasize with founders is, is how important it is that they think about the role that they have and how the standards um, for them have to be even higher. So what is the role of board in this balance between the natural optimism of a CEO or the founders um, with making sure they don't get too uh, far ahead of themselves and start rep- misrepresenting uh, what is going on, not only to the board, but, uh, you know, to other audiences in general. You have to uh, listen carefully for the boundaries between what's possible and what's being represented to be true today. And, th- and that's where people get in trouble because, of course, it is the founder's um, ability to paint a picture, if you will, of what's possible that gets people excited about the company, including venture capitalists and other board members, employees that they're recruiting, you know, all the constituents of the company uh, need to need someone to be able to paint that picture of what the world could look like. You know, that, you know, this market, which doesn't exist today, could be very large because of what we can offer to these customers, that sort of thing. Um, But I do, I think where people get in trouble is when uh, they suggest things that are not yet true to be true. Um, and so as a director of the company, you know, what we try to do is when we see those lapses, you know, we try to call them out, maybe not in a public setting. If we say somebody presenting to my partnership for an update and I see two or three things that I know are not true, but they could have just said to my partners are true. I wouldn't call them out in front of my partners, but I'd take them aside afterward and say, Hey, look, that's really not cool. Um, you can't do that. Um, Let's just stick to what, you know, what's true. You've got plenty of good stuff here. And my partners are going to get really turned off if you don't stick to what's true. Yeah, we always joke at Floodgate, there's like a fine line between the visionary founder and the founder having visions. Um, and and it's, it's, it's tough to, to really tell the difference sometimes. Um, you know, we, we rely a lot uh, initially on uh, diligence. So... Just understanding how close to reality is is what this person says uh, that they can build, um, and then and then I think it is just sort of holding people to high standards and 
and calling people out if it if it isn't if something isn't true and, and i love the way scott talks about it of like not doing it in public it's not about shaming the person but really teaching them that it's not okay and and actually the progress that they're making is is the right kind of progress oftentimes uh, the progress of the company is super impressive. They don't need to overrepresent what's true today. You know, the, the, the real progress combined with the excitement of what's possible is plenty enough to get venture capitalists excited enough to write the next check. Conversely, one or two little slip-ups of things that are not really true call everything into question. While boards directly hire and fire the CEO, they can also influence how a company thinks about its hiring strategy more broadly. For many of us who teach and practice entrepreneurship, the need to build more diverse networks and companies has been front and center this year. I was curious to learn how Ann and Scott think about their roles when it comes to advocating for diversity in the companies they fund. On some level, it's an ethical issue, and some some level, it's just an operational issue. It's it's an issue of performance and access to incredible networks. And so, if we want the very best network effects in our hiring practices, and if we're looking at um, building a great company for the long term, uh, then having a great diverse uh, team whether it's you know the management team the individual contributors at the board uh, the investor set uh, it's it's really important to have and so uh, and i don't think about it just in terms of gender balance i, I think about it just in terms of perspective uh, and making sure that we have a wide variety of perspectives at the table uh, when we're making any kind of important decision. People routinely come from other parts of the world wondering why Silicon Valley has produced, produced so many amazing things. And it seems pretty clear to me that it's the diversity of people and thought that come from all over the world and by and large are treated equally, um, which doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, so we're, we're huge proponents of trying to encourage diversity in our partnership, in our companies, in, in all aspects of, of what we do. As Ann said, it's been, it's been a, an issue for a really long time, and I think we have a long way to go, obviously. Um, but more recently, it's, it's taken on a renewed focus. I would say um, in the last five years, it has become one of the four or five most important objectives for a company as it develops over the course of a year or two. You know, and, and it's absolutely a subject of board-level conversation on a regular basis. And by the way, I think that's making a big difference. If I just look at gender diversity, which seemed to have a little bit more energy around it a couple of years earlier than some of the more recent um, uh, diversity questions, uh, there is a lot of progress being made on gender diversity. And it's also not surprisingly making a wonderful difference. A lot of it has to do with just uh, the, the desire of people to report and, you know, a while ago, it was really hard to get people to even talk about it and provide the data. And today, I'm even seeing limited partners uh, who are invested in these venture capital firms asking for that data with respect to the investors, the general partners within these firms. Uh, and so, and then, and the same thing for us is you know we're we're asking the question of. We want the data in terms of how are we performing with our, our investments? 
Um, what kind of diversity do we have? And, and then even within our investments, they are collecting the data on how diverse their employee base is. And so, so the fact that people are gathering the data, the fact that people are asking these questions of themselves and of each other, I think is a, is a huge step forward. This is exciting to hear Ann mention that limited partners are becoming more interested in things like diversity data. Limited partners, or LPs for short, are the people and entities that invest money with venture capital firms. Maximizing the returns on their investments is always important, but as Ann points out, they have other values as well. I was curious to know whether Ann and Scott have observed a trend of limited partners becoming more concerned with the ethical implications of their investments. Indisputably. I mean, I think a lot of limited partners are um, sources of capital that have their own set of constituents, whether it's a state pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or an endowment for a university. All of these pools of capital are accountable to somebody. And so all the issues that um, we've been discussing um, come to light. Uh, in terms of the focus they place when they make investments. They, a simple way of saying it is they do just as much due diligence on us as we do on our founders. And they're just as sensitive to all the same issues. And I, I see this with uh, many of our limited partners. Uh, I feel fortunate that we have very close relationships with them. And so uh, they, will, they will ask us tough questions uh, and they will also do diligence on other firms um, and trying to understand if there's a if there's an ethical concern, they will reach out and and ask the the tough questions. Uh, and I think that that makes for a better environment because it it causes us to always stay on our toes. Uh, and so I know that our limited partners have high standards because they've asked me questions about other firms. Uh, and and so as a result of that, uh, I maintain those high standards. I love the fact that they are asking these questions and that we can have an open dialogue with them. Uh, and so I think the more these limited partners push, the better it is for the entire industry. No doubt about that. Everyone, all humans do better when they're accountable to something or someone. And we are just as accountable to our limited partners as our founders are to us. Um, and our behavior is being watched uh, every bit as much as their behavior. And the consequences of unethical behavior are just as dramatic or more so uh, in some cases, uh, because our limited partners are absolutely doing background checks. Um, as Ann said, she gets calls about other people. I get lots of calls about other people. Um, and so if, you know, if somebody is really acting in an unethical way, eventually it's going to have an impact. As I said before, they may never know what that impact is. It's sort of a, a silent consequence. Um, but I have no doubt that that, you know, especially a consistent pattern of unethical behavior will, will absolutely have an impact if somebody's in the venture business and they're trying to raise money. I'm honored to say that in addition to their day jobs as venture capitalists, Ann and Scott also have a hand in helping train our future leaders at Stanford University. 
and is teaching leadership of technology ventures in the Mayfield Fellows Program. And Scott is a collaborator with Jack Fuchs in his Principled Entrepreneurial Decisions course. So to wrap things up, I've invited them to weigh in on what they think is most important when it comes to teaching aspiring entrepreneurs and innovators about ethics. Many of our students come to it with a very uh, clear sense of right or wrong. Uh, and it's almost like my, my kids are this way too. There's good people and then there's bad people. And when you peel the onion in many of these situations, you come to realize that that's just not the way the world works. It's not like someone is born just a bad, evil human being, that they're going to start a company to do bad, evil things, and, and the investors are there to support them in their bad, evil things. And so, so the question of like, where does this start? How does it happen? Is such an interesting one. And I think probably teaching students the nuance of that is, is really valuable to me, even in my everyday work, because it's a constant reminder that the ethical dilemmas that really show up in your world are not these obvious situations where you say, if I go right, I am heading down the wrong path. And if I go left, it is totally the right path. And so that nuance to me is, is probably one of the more important lessons. And I relearn it every day. Well, you know, I think Anne put her, her finger on something really important, which is that uh, ethical decisions are seldom all good or all bad. If you start with the premise uh, that ethics have consequences, which is a lot of what we've been talking about today, and one of the things that we try to get across to the students in our class, then you realize that making these kinds of decisions is something you need to be prepared for. And the best preparation is to have worked through a bunch of cases um, and to start to develop your own framework, uh, your own set of principles uh, to think about uh, or to, to help you think through these ethical dilemmas when they come along. And, and, and it's not that practice makes perfect, but having that practice of thinking through a bunch of these examples uh, before you're faced with them, you know, uh, often under a lot of time pressure and a lot of scrutiny can be really useful. I think one other thing, Tom, that, that's also come up for me is oftentimes these founders also have really good intent. You know, the, um, whoever's making, whoever has the ethical dilemma, uh, they may not realize even that it is an ethical dilemma and they have really good intent. And, uh, and sometimes it's just the wrong decision. There's these unintended consequences and understanding what that might actually look like. Playing it out and making sure that, I don't know, this movement, this revolution that you're creating isn't going sideways for some reason. I mean, for me, I think the other thing that you, you see very clearly when you uh, go through these cases is that uh, there is often a real cost to doing the right thing. Um, and so if you, if you don't have a way to think about what the consequences are, it's very hard to, to take the expensive road, which might be the right road. And I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, which I think is a subject of one of the other podcasts, that's Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Bruce Kozad. When you hear the whole arc of what happened to him in that company, 
Um, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that if he wasn't guided by a set of ethical uh, principles and values, he would have just gotten so lost along the way, uh, which actually reminds me of something, which um, I wrote down and pinned up on my little wall at my office, which I haven't been to in a while now, but it comes from Ann's partner, Mike Maples, and who once said to me, integrity is the path where you never get lost. Well, that's it, folks. The final episode of our Entrepreneurship and Ethics mini-series. If you missed the Bruce Kozad conversation that Scott mentions towards the end, it's easy to find. Just rewind to the first episode of this mini-series. The episode is titled, Facing a Crisis with Principles. It's been a true delight to put together this Entrepreneurship and Ethics podcast, and I hope it inspires students, teachers, and practicing entrepreneurs to make ethics more central to their visions of what entrepreneurship and innovation is all about. While this mini-series itself is coming to an end, Stanford eCorner's efforts to put ethics at the heart of entrepreneurship are only just beginning. I'd especially encourage you to also follow our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders, or ETL, podcast. I'll include that link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Luke Sikora and Rachel Jilkowski for Stanford eCorner and edited by Katie Fernelius. Daniel Stusi is our designer and digital products manager. Our growth marketing specialist is Nora Kata, and I'm Tom Byers. As always, thank you for listening.